Thank you, Jake. I'm personally grateful to all of our shepherds for launching this effort. And again, go to westernhills.church, click the Good Neighbor Effort link, and you'll find out more information and ways that you can be involved. I want to express once again just my appreciation for all of you spending your morning with us. I know this is not what any of us planned, but you honor us, and we hope it's a blessing and encouragement to you. So, and again, to those that are not have not typically been a part of our services locally before the crisis began, you're now joining us online and part of the streaming. Uh, I want to welcome you and just let you know that we consider you part of our church. We're spending time each week praying for everybody that we know that shares a name with us or shares a prayer request. I've had a chance through through some people that would respond at the end of the message to meet some new people. So I've had a chance to meet some folks in this area and around the world, at least via phone call, because of, of their response here. So you're a part of our church, and we're praying for you. And I want you to know, whenever this ends, whenever the, the quarantine, the shelter in place, I know that we're in different phases right now, whenever it ends, we're not stopping the live stream. Uh, we're committed to this. We realize what a chance it is to reach out and make a connection. And so we want you to know that, that you're a part. If when we do come back together and you're local and you want to join us uh, live and in, present, in person, we definitely invite that when the time is right. But until then, we just want you to know that the live stream is going to continue on even after that so you can stay a part. And so as now we're into the situation where they're starting to reopen, uh, Texas in many ways, and they're phase one and phase two, and all these things are still being tested and experimented with, and we're not really sure what all they're going to mean. Let me tell you what we're going to be doing here. For the foreseeable future, we're still going to be in a live stream mode, and we're encouraging you to meet, if you feel comfortable and you can do it safely, in small groups, in homes, and be these, what we're calling, house churches. And that's a very first century thing to do. This is how the church began when Jesus launched the, the church in the first century, it began by meeting in homes. And so here we are again, meeting once again in homes. And so you can be as small as your family, anybody else in your house, or bring in another group or uh, an acquaintance or invite someone, once again, that's not at risk and you feel comfortable with into that and form these house churches. And right now, we've got house churches around the world. And that's just an incredible thought to me. For those of you that are local, that are part of Western Hills, again, we're not sure yet when we're going to come back together and have a, a worship on our campus. We're monitoring the situation, the elders, the ministers, we're meeting weekly to discuss it. But we want you to know that when we can do it um, safely, we're going to be back together. But until then, we want to encourage you just to keep meeting like this and be a part of it. I know it's not what we all hope for, but God is doing some powerful things through this medium and through this opportunity. And He's using you to do that. I also want to say that when we do come back together, I know the desire, because I feel desire too, because right now I keep preaching to a big empty room. I want us to be back together also. But when we do, you need to know that things are probably going to be different. We're trying to figure out how to do that responsibly. And right now, things like children's ministry and student ministry, those are big questions. Also, how will we share in the communion with plates that are typically passed each week? Those are big questions. So we're working on all these. We're, I'm just preparing you to extend us some grace as we try to figure all this out together and go forward. Well, blessings on you with us today. 
I'm so glad that you're with us. If you just now join us, we have been going through the Gospel of Luke because we've committed this year, long before we knew about a COVID-19 crisis, we committed this year to focus on Jesus each and every Sunday. And so many of us have what we call our Luke Scripture Journals. You're going to hear me refer to that. That is simply the Gospel of Luke. That's been our first guide on this journey as we explore who Jesus is and discover who He is. And so I want you to find either your Scripture Journal or get a copy of the Bible. And again, at westmills.church, you can pull up the Scriptures that we're going to be using today. You can even print them out if you want to follow along and write down and create your own Scripture Journal in many ways. But we're going to dive in to my favorite chapter of the Bible. I, I love what Jesus teaches us here, and I am so glad that you're with us today because I believe this is going to be an important message for all of us because I know it's an important one for me personally and what Jesus is trying to communicate. Well, I'm going to do this by, by starting this, this thing. I came across an artist that what the artist did is he would go to the art galleries, he was a photographer, and he would go to these famous art galleries in Paris and Vienna and in Germany, and he would wait for hours looking at these masterpieces, but he wasn't watching just the masterpiece on the wall, he was also looking at the people that came to view the art. And every so often his patience was awarded, was rewarded, and he found someone that matched, an observer that matched the painting that they were looking at, and he captured some of these. I'm going to share some of these with you right now. Here's the first one. you got to love this lady looking at the modern art and just the strong, broad stripes and the lines, and it just looks like she just fell right out of that, that picture right there. Here's another one. Well, this one, it looks like she's like the next person at this meeting. It's like a meeting of the pilgrims here with, the, with all the hats on. It looks like she showed up in the right dress code. It looks like she could just be right a part of that. This one, this lady looks like she just literally walked right out of that painting, doesn't she? I don't know if she intended to match it, but here she is taking a picture of the painting, and this artist captures her as she looks right there. And this is my favorite one. This was just a bright and colorful one. This guy looking at it with his shirt that matches these colors. Why do I show you these? Because the artist, his goal was to... And then he found them in the painting. He found them in that piece of art. Well, that's what a story is supposed to do. And in today's scripture, we're looking at not just one story, but three stories. And the challenge for each of us, the invitation for each of us, is to find ourselves reflected in the story. See, Jesus was a master storyteller. And every time he tells a story, and you may know them by the name parable, a parable is an illustration or story that Jesus told. And every time he tells a story, he is inviting us to find ourselves inside that story. And he's able to connect things not just to our minds, but into our hearts in an incredibly powerful way. And you're going to see that today. Well, I want to start in Luke chapter 15. And I want to set the stage before we get right to our stories. But Luke chapter 15, in a second you're going to hear it read... But let me, let me show you one thing that's going on in Luke 15. So if you've got your Bibles or you've got your Bible app turned on or you've got it printed out, Luke 15 begins with Jesus teaching and he describes, or Luke describes, the people that are around Jesus at this moment. The ones that are watching him and listening to him as he teaches. So 15.1 says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, the man, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Luke gives us this incredible clue. There's a crowd around Jesus. He's teaching. And those pressed in closest to him are the least like him. Tax collectors and sinners. This is code for the worst of the worst. This is the people that you and I would not want to associate with. These are the ones that don't stand a chance. They're outside their religious system. They've tried it and they failed at it. And Jesus draws them in and they're standing the closest because there's something about Jesus that's irresistible to them. Those that are the least like Him seem to like Him the most. And I want you to know if that describes you, then if you were to meet Jesus in person in the flesh today, there would be something about Him that you would find irresistible. Something in His eyes and the way He looked at you and the way He spoke to you that you could not ignore. Now, you may have had an experience with going to church somewhere and had the exact opposite. And if that's the case, I'm sorry. But I want you to know if you met Jesus, then it would be a completely different experience. Well, those are the people that are closest into him. And then there's this kind of this next row that doesn't want to get in with the mess of the, the first group, and they're standing a little bit at the back. And as they look at the scene, they're the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, that's code for these are the good guys. These are the ones that we would want to be like, we would want to be associated with because they have all the respect and they've got the places of power and they're on the success track and they're respectable in their communities and you would just want to be around these if you were trying to have some upward mobility in your situation. But look what they're doing. They're grumbling. And they're accusing Jesus. They're saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And you need to understand that to eat with someone in that day meant far more than it does now. Now, it's still a special thing when somebody calls you and says, hey, let's go grab lunch, or we want to invite you over for dinner. And that's still a special and a very unique invitation. But what that meant back then was when you sat down and ate with someone, you were in full fellowship with them. You were in full agreement with them. You gave a blessing to them and a validation to them. And so if you didn't approve of somebody... You didn't sit down and eat with him. And so here's Jesus, and he just always seems to be enjoying a good meal and mixing it up with the wrong crowd. And the good guys, the Pharisees, they see this, and it drives them up the wall because they keep thinking that Jesus is going to be on their side and he's going to be most appreciative of them. And so there's this, in this group, there's a group of people that realize that they're far from God and there's something about Jesus that makes them feel closer to God. And then there's the Pharisees and the scribes and all the leaders, religious leaders. They're in the back row and they think they're close to God. They think they've got God's favor, but they can't figure out why Jesus would hang out with this group. And so this question hangs in the air because Jesus, Jesus knows what's not being said. Jesus knows what's not being asked out loud, at least to him, because it goes on all the time through Luke, through this gospel. There's times when Jesus reveals what's going on in somebody's head. And so he's going to answer this question, what is God like? What's the Heavenly Father like? Because they're trying to figure out why this relationship with those that are the least like him seem to like him the most, and how is that up 
turning upside down their religious structure. And so Jesus gives them not just one story, but three stories. So I want you to find yourself, as we go through today's sermon, in these stories. The first two, I'm going to invite my friend Chris Burnett to read for us. So if you would, in your Bibles, Chris is going to read for us Luke chapter 15, 1 through 10. Chris? Good morning. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Thank you, Chris. Did you hear the two stories? It's two different stories about things that have been lost and then found. Or maybe a better way of talking about it is things that were sought and found. In the first one, you've got a shepherd. And Jesus asks this question and says, you know, when... Uh, the shepherd, even though he has 99, he's got one loss. What do you do? And everybody in that day, because agriculture and livestock was so valuable, you go looking for it because that's an investment. That's, that's a reward there. That's a valuable treasure that you don't just check off or just write it off the books easily. And so the shepherd goes looking for it, and the people nod their heads and they say, yes, that's what the shepherd would do. And he talks about the celebration that that shepherd would throw. And then the second one, it's a woman who loses a coin. And the coin was part of her dowry, part of her, her security package, her financial worth. And to lose this coin isn't simply like dropping a quarter. It's losing a major part of your value and your net worth. And so she sweeps the house until she finds it. And that's exactly what you would do. We lose things far less valuable and we go on a tirade looking for them. You ever lost your car keys? You ever turn the house upside down trying to find it, that or your wallet or your cell phone? Where is it? We even have things now that we attach to our cell phones so that when we do lose them, we can find them even quicker and easier. Because we don't like the feeling of things being lost. And the searching causes some anxiety. And so she finds the coin and again a celebration is thrown. And then Jesus tells one more story. Because at the first two, everybody's nodding, saying, yes, that's exactly what you would do for a lost sheep. That's exactly what you would do if you lost a coin that was so valuable. And everybody in this is agreeing. And then he launches into his third story, and his third story is the most dramatic, the most tender, the most in uh, the middle of your heart kind of story. Because he begins to use a different picture. It's not an agricultural one. It's not a financial one. It's a family one. And he talks about a father and a son. And this is 
a metaphor. This is a picture that transcends all generations, isn't it? It transcends all cultures, this idea of a father and son. And so Jesus is using a very powerful analogy. Now, one about shepherds and one about sheep that, uh, or coin, that may be lost on you and me, but this one's not. This one goes right to our hearts, and it probably speaks right to your heart. Whether you had a great relationship with your father or you had a struggling relationship with your father, you're going to find yourself somewhere in the story. And so with that in mind, if you would, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. I'm going to begin to read this story, and we're going to work our way through this story, and I hope you've got something to write with and something to, to highlight or circle or maybe use the feature on your app to highlight some of these passages. But again, here's what's so powerful about this chapter. Jesus says, his third story, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, you have to understand, this request would be offensive today. Because here's what the request is. Dad, your heartbeat is keeping me from what I want. The fact that you're still alive is preventing me from cashing in on my inheritance. Can you imagine your child coming up and saying this to you? I mean, at this point, all of Jesus' listeners are like us. They're leaning in and they're shocked at the audacity of this request. I mean, for the son to say, Dad, this relationship is already dead. What's going on between you and me, it's been broken for a long time. So let's just go ahead and push to the very um, natural consequence will go all the way to the end. I'm really just waiting for you to die. Can we just go ahead and pretend like that's happened now and you give me what I want and then I'm out of here. And then I'll, I'll be out of your hair because we know that's best for both of us. That's the language the son is using. Well, the only thing that's more audacious than the request itself is what the father does next. And he divided his property between them. Now, you know the people listening in the first century as Jesus told the story to the original audience. They're caught off guard. And for the first time, but not the only time in the story, their mouths drop open. Because it was an audacious request, and the father should have kicked out the son at that moment with nothing. And yet, he goes to the, to the effort of dividing up his property looking over the books, liquidating what he has to liquidate, and giving his son a share of the value of the estate. Converting it into what we'd call cash, just so he can be mobile and leave home with it. An incredible response from the dad. So the son, we don't know how long it took the father to divide up his property and work through all that business, but... Jesus does add this part of the story in verse 13. Not many days later. So all he was doing was waiting for the cash. This younger son was just waiting for him to get what was his and so he could head out the door. So once he receives it, his bags are packed and he's gone. The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. 
So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. This is a, not necessarily rags to riches, but a riches to rags story. Because he takes this wealth and it's, we're led to believe it is a considerable amount. And he goes to a far country. And Jesus is telling a story, and so he doesn't specify the country, but what he means by a far country is not just in distance, but in distance of relationship. He is trying to shake off the dirt of home. He's trying to break all ties. He is going as far away as he can. He wants to be anonymous with his cash. And he goes in and he begins to live this lavish lifestyle. This one of a party and everybody becomes his friends because the drinks flow freely around this guy. He is buying friendship at this point. He's living the club life that he'd always wanted. And he begins to burn through this money at a just incredibly, we would say, irresponsible rate. And then, as we've been proven to ourselves over this last season, you cannot always predict the future. And so it wasn't a pandemic, but it was a famine. And you have to understand in an agricultural society, when a famine hit, it was comprehensive. And it rattled their structure up and down the food chain, the food supply. And so this famine hits, and not only does he run out of money, but now he doesn't even have the means to purchase money. And the food drives up. And so he goes from what he thinks is top of the hill to the very bottom of the heap at this moment. And so it's a far country, so it means it's not a Jewish country, which means he's not around his own people, people that would think like him, respect him in, as far as his very core values. And so he hires himself out to a farmer, and a farmer has him feeding these pigs. And this is something that no good Jewish boy would be doing. And so what we're to take away from this is that he's gone from the top to the very bottom. Now, everybody gathered around, around Jesus at the moment as he tells the story. They'd be leaning in and they'd be thinking, he's getting what he deserves. And when they hear these feeding pigs, they're like, he is at absolute rock bottom. This is a good story, Jesus. And you know the Pharisees were leaning in going, finally, one that we can like, a story that we can get on board with, because this one has the great cause and effect. He was frivolous. He was irresponsible. He was rude. He was arrogant. This is what happens when you're all those things. You end up at the very bottom. Jesus goes on with the story. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, boy, isn't that a powerful statement. When he finally came to himself, some translators say, when he came to his senses, when he came into his right mind. How many of you have gone through a season of life where you weren't yourself? And you were either addicted to something or distracted by something or you're engaged in an affair or you were so deep in some kind of behavior, you were not yourself. And somewhere along the way, you woke up in the middle of it and you realized, this is not who I am. This is not what I want to be about. This is not what I've been called to be. Well, he comes to himself and he asks himself this question. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. 
So he comes up with a plan. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, this is a great moment of clarity because he does realize that he's no longer in the same relationship with the Father. And so he comes up with this idea that I'm going to go on and get hired on because my father servants have it better than in this country working for this man. So I'm going to get hired back on. But I wonder if there's not a little sense of I'm going to try to obligate my father back into a relationship. If I can get hired on, at least then he's obliged to care for me because he'll have to care for me as one of the servants. And I wonder, just as an aside, how many of us think that sometimes what our best strategy is if we can oblige God to do something on our hand. If, if we can work out a deal with God, if we can negotiate something with Him where if He will, then I will. Or I will to make God responsible where He's got to do something on my behalf. And that's his thought process because he knows in his mind he's fallen so far out of reach of his father, so far out of favor with his father, that he cannot come back as a son. And so he comes up with this plan. He's going to be humble. He practices it all the way home. You can almost hear him practicing each step of the way. Verse 20, he arose, came to his father. And then Jesus says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And you've got to know, as he's telling the story, everybody's leaning in. <clears throat> because what they're thinking at this moment is, what's the father going to do? But the father sees him. And the picture that's hard for us to see, but Jesus' listeners would have understood, is that as he came, he would have been passing through the village. And in that culture... When you had such an audacious request, you shamed the father. But not only did you shame the father because it was such a tight community, you shamed the village as well. And some of you that perhaps you grew up in a small town, you knew that if somebody, something happened notorious from your town, then how that brought some type of reprieve on the whole town or brought some type of, of stigma to the town. Well, he brought this to the town. And so as he brought shame to his father and the rest of the community was so appalled at it, as he's having to walk back to his father's house, he's walking through the town. Now, in, in that scenario, what they would have done is the town would have felt every bit the right and expected. They would have gathered up and they would have created a gauntlet for him to walk through. Because you have to pay a price when you act this way, right? And so he would have been walking this gauntlet of shame while the streets began to fill with the town and they would have taunted him perhaps even thrown stuff at him. But they would have let him know that they were ashamed of him because he brought shame on them. And so when they say, Jesus says, the father saw him from afar away, then everybody listening to Jesus fully expected the story to be, and he waited with his arms crossed. And he waited inside the house until the son made it all the way to the front porch. And then he knocked on the door and the father even waited till he opened the door. And then he began to scold and lecture his son. See, that is how everybody thinks the story is about to go. And here's what Jesus says. His father saw him and he felt compassion. 
Now, nobody expected that word to come out of Jesus' mouth. He felt compassion for him, and he ran to him. And everybody, especially the Pharisees gathered around the back listening to this, were going, Jesus, he's, he's disgraced his family. He's disgraced his, disgraced his village. He's gone to a far country. He's been around people that are not the people of God. And to make matters worse, he's probably slept with prostitutes. He's partied himself until uh, he's sick. And then at the end of it, he hired himself out to feed pigs. He is as unclean as you can possibly be unclean. He is not fit for a relationship right now. And Jesus tells this story and he runs to him and he runs, the father runs to him and he embraces him. Now we're all aware of embracing right now because of social distancing. And now that makes us kind of uncomfortable. But this father runs to his son and he embraces him and everybody in the crowd just freaks out. And I wonder if Jesus doesn't grin when he says the next one, and he kissed him. He was fully embracing him. It is not the reaction anybody expected. And the son launches into a speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father is not even listening. The father says to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate and the party begins. And what a party it is. He is throwing this massive celebration. He has run out to his son. But the story goes on. Now the elder son was in the field and he came and drew near the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked him, What, what are these things meant? He hears this noise. And the servant says to him, Your brother's come home. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. And verse 28, But he was angry and refused to go in. So for the second time in this day, this father goes out to his son, his father came out to him and entreated him, but he answered him. This is the son speaking to his dad. Listen to this. Look, these many years. Look. Can you, can you imagine the son speaking to his dad that way? Look. And he's going to make his point. And he's doing this in front of the servants. And so he is now disrespecting the father. I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with, the, with my friends. Listen to how entitled he thinks he is. He thinks he has earned the Father's affection. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even call him his brother, but when this son of yours who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill a fatted calf for him. So he's not rejoicing at all. He is simply offended that his father would lavish this on his, on his brother. In verse 31, And he said to him, this is the father talking, Son, you are always with me, and what is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, brother, for this your brother was dead and is alive, was lost, and is found. The second time, the father goes out to his son. And here you had the older brother that never left home and was 
faithful and dutiful, but did not understand the heart of the father. That this father's heart had broken because he didn't have not one of his sons, but all of his children together. And even though the son was there at home, he was still distant from the father's heart. We, we see this story, and we hear the word prodigal son. And the original meaning of the word prodigal, the reason it was titled this by the people that put together the, the chapters and the numbers in the Bible, and you'll see that printed lots of places, is because the definition of prodigal is a foolish, lavish, extravagant spending of wealth and giving of gifts. That, that's the, the original one, because the son was foolish and extravagant. But this can also be said about the father, because he is recklessly sharing his gifts. It was not wise to divide the estate. You certainly don't throw a party for the one that causes you financial hardship like he did. And yet the father is lavishing on his children this celebration, this prodigal, this foolish giving that he is. And Jesus is saying, this is the heart of God. So when the question is asked by the guys all surrounded him, by the tax collectors, by the sinners, and by the Pharisees and the scribes, the people that are the least like Jesus, and the ones that think that Jesus should pay attention to them most, what's the father like? He says it's like this father, the one that runs to his children. Whether they've been with him or they've been far away, he runs and he seeks. So I'm going to give some takeaways from this lesson. Then a couple of questions that I want you, you to wrestle with. Here's takeaway number one. Got to close up. Takeaway number one is this. Jesus did not come to give you religion. He came to bring you into relationship. Jesus did not come to give us religion. See, that's the perception that a lot of people think that Jesus came to give us another set of rules. Here's now the rules on how you get to God. There are no rules presented in this parable. What Jesus is doing is describing a God that is passionate to be in relationship with each other. And so Jesus comes to bring us into that relationship. And you understand that what the, the story is telling us is that the son would have had to walk this gauntlet of shame, right? What Jesus does for you and I in representing the Father in this is that God, through Jesus, ran the gauntlet of shame. And He ran that when He went to the cross. That which was intended for you and me, that which should be our justly deserved punishment, Jesus ran through that gauntlet. He received all the shame, all the agony, all the torture, all the consequences of what was right for you and I. When the Father leaps off the porch, He runs through that gauntlet so His Son doesn't have to. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did not come to bring you more rules and religion. He came to bring you into relationship with God. That is what He offers. That is what He's inviting us into. And if you've thought that church and Christianity and following Jesus is about adding more rules to your life, you need to spend some time with this story. Because he is inviting us into relationship, not as a hired hand, but as a child of God. Second takeaway is going to be this. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. 
just came to make dead people alive. If, if the impression that you get from, about Jesus is what he does is he's come to clean your life up just a little bit. That he's come to make you a little better than what you are. That all it is is a couple of tweaks and suddenly you're in a good place. Jesus is not a self-improvement plan. That is not what he came for. Twice in this story, the phrase is used by the father describing the younger son. It says he was dead and now he's alive. In verse 20, uh, 24 and 32, he was dead and now he's alive. That's what Jesus came to do. He's come to make whatever is dead in your life, in your old heart, and create in you a new heart, a heart that is alive and well and, and beating with the power of the Spirit, not in whatever it is you've been caught up in the past. Not, not, I don't care how far country you've been. He's not come to make you slightly better than the old you. He's come to make you new, a new creation. You were dead and now you're alive. And here's this one. A question for you. Where do you find yourself in the story? Where, where do you find yourself as you look in the story? Do you see yourself as a younger son? And you've experienced the time away from God, and your big question right now is, how can God ever take me back? Then this story is for you. Or perhaps you're like many of us, that we've been, so we think, in relationship with God for a long time. But what's happened to us now is we've become entitled, we think. We've become that, that what we can do is we can now look at others and we can now judge them and point to them and what their problems are. In fact, many of you that see yourself as a younger son, this may be your struggle with the church because you encountered church somewhere and they told you you didn't belong, you didn't fit, you weren't worthy. And the struggle for us that ever find ourselves as the older brother is that we look and we see this lavish recklessness of God's grace, His love being poured out on those, and then we have a phrase, but they don't deserve it. And what you need to know and what Jesus is going to tell us today is that grace is never deserved. That makes it grace. So where do you find yourself in this story. And where you find yourself will set you on the course on how you can find your way back to God. Because remember, it's the God that comes looking for you. God has all the action in this story. He goes and looks for the sheep. He goes and looks for the coin. He goes and looks for the younger son. And he goes and looks for the older son that even though we've been inside and we think close to him, he still comes looking for us to be in relationship. And so then the last question is this. Here's what I want you to think about. Will we celebrate with the Father? Will we celebrate what God celebrates? This is a story, I don't know what your image of God is, but what Jesus is telling us is that we've got a God that loves to celebrate. And so many of you think that he's been pursuing you so that when he gets a hold of you, he can discipline you that He can chew you out, that He can let you know how worthless you are. And what you need to understand is when you feel God's breathing down your neck and coming in close to you, it's because He wants to win you back and celebrate. Can we, 
those that know what it means to be in Christ, can we celebrate with the Father as He brings all of His children home? The ones that we like and the ones that we think don't deserve it. And that will determine how we go forward as a church and whether or not we will carry this message into a world that needs it now more than ever, that God is desperately seeking them. So that's one of the, the things about COVID-19 is a lot of people were asking the question, does God care? Is this some punishment that He's sitting on top of us? Where is God in the midst of all this? It is going to be those of us that follow Jesus and we know what it's like to be found that are going to carry that message. Will we celebrate what the Father celebrates? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for all those hearing this message because I know that it lands in different places and different hearts. And for some of us, we're the younger son and we feel like we're far away and we're in a distant country and the thought of having any kind of relationship with you seems such a pipe dream. And Father, for some of us, we're so caught up in thinking of what we're entitled to and we fail to celebrate you and hear your heart and your desire and your longing for all your children to be back home. Father, I pray that wherever we find ourselves, walking the path home or standing out in the field, that you would remind us that it was Jesus that came to claim us. And because of what he did on the cross, we can come back in relationship with you. Not because we're so special, and certainly not because we deserve it, but because you made it possible. You laid down your life. You would rather die than live without us. So, Father, I ask for all of those who are hearing this message, wherever they are, gathered in a house church, whether they're local or around the world, Father, I ask that you would bring this message home to them. And this week, this week, we would have a sense that there's a Father that's standing on the front porch looking for us, eager for us, ready to celebrate. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.